and welcome to Series 4 of the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts. It's now two years since the first ever podcast went out and we've covered many issues, interviewed patients, families, nurses, surgeons, oncologists, researchers, dietitians, charity workers and fundraisers, all sharing their experiences, knowledge and wisdom. This series opens with special episodes for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. This year we are focusing on palliative and end-of-life care, which holds some special challenges given the current survival rates for the disease. We have a lineup of wonderful people for the months to come. We are pleased that this year the podcast will be in support of all four pancreatic cancer charities, Pancreatic Cancer UK, Pancreatic Cancer Action, Pancreatic Cancer Research Fund and the Elizabeth Coatman Fund. If you listen to the podcast, please subscribe, share and help others understand more about this disease, its impact, the current survival rates and the hope for change in the future. The Purple Rainbow podcast is made in memory of Seth Goodburn and it's a part of Seth's legacy. Hello, welcome to this episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast. I hope you are well. In this episode, we're talking to Vicky Stevenson-Hornby and Darren Subar. Now, they're both based in Lancashire. Vicky is a pancreas specialist nurse. And if you're thinking, I recognise that name, that's because, yes, we have spoken to her on the podcasts before. But as you will hear in her in a moment, her role has changed since we last spoke to her. Darren is a clinical lead for Pancreatic Cancer Rapid Diagnostic Centre, as well as lots of other things. And he'll tell you all about those as well. I spoke to the pair of them about the challenges of 2020 and what it's been like for them working with patients with pancreatic cancer in the context of 2020 and all the stuff that that has brought with it, as well as talking about what it's like working in a specialism where you more often than not have to give out, quite frankly, the worst diagnosis to your patients. It's a really frank discussion at times, lots of stuff to take away from it. But what I really enjoyed about this conversation was the passion from both Vicky and Darren about what they do. Yes, there are some moments of frustration, but there's also quite a bit of laughter in this episode. But that's not to say we aren't taking it seriously. I'll let Vicky start the conversation. I'm in a new post. Um, the Rapid Diagnostic Centre is a new um, service which has been set up in Lancashire and South Cumbria just this year. <clears throat> and I am the pancreas specialist nurse for that service, which aims to achieve, work to achieve earlier diagnosis of pancreatic cancer by patients um, being referred in earlier, by us finding them earlier, but also by them having um, the right test in a speedy manner so that hopefully we can make that diagnosis earlier. I kind of have a sort of two roles here. I'm actually, as well as being a consultant, I'm the clinical director for cancer services for East Lang's Healthcare Trust. And I'm also the clinical lead for pancreatic cancer, uh, for the pancreatic cancer rapid diagnostic service. So um, 
my role really is looking at how we can um, clinically accelerate this pathway to diagnosis, um, engaging the different hospitals that refer into us, engaging the GP practices when they see patients with a possible diagnosis of this cancer, what they need to do to try to get patients um, into us uh, a lot faster. So it's, it's a lot of um, a lot of legwork, a lot of telephone calls, um, a lot of um, dealing with different personalities um, to try and bring sort of the, the Lancashire and South Cumbria Alliance together to try and drive this forward. And this year, 2020, has been a challenging year that nobody expected to see in particular with the, with the pandemic. How has that affected you guys? So a number of things have happened in, in, in the context of the COVID pandemic. One is that for want of a better word, it came relatively suddenly, although truth be told, it didn't really come suddenly. We knew it was coming, but of our reaction, it has been quite sudden. There were a number of guidelines that were put in place once COVID hit, and those guidelines uh, affected the diagnostic process that was normally being the pathway for when these patients are, are, have a suspected pancreatic cancer. So endoscopic services where we have to do camera tests into the stomach to try and get a diagnosis for pancreatic cancer, that was affected, significantly so. But in addition to that, what we, what we, have, what we saw in the first um, surge was that there were a lot of patients who were not really coming forward as they normally would do, primarily because they were afraid of what was happening in and around the COVID pandemic. Thirdly, our ability to provide the... Um, the treatment for these patients in terms of chemotherapy treatments and um, surgical treatments for these patients were significantly affected because we didn't have the theater capacity, theaters were down, the chemotherapy, the oncologists didn't want to give chemotherapy in the context of the COVID pandemic. So it was, it was quite, a, quite a challenge um, to face. So pancreatic cancer, I think regular listeners to the podcast will know and understand that it is a vicious, nasty disease. But for people who are just new to it, or just finding out a little bit more about it, why is it such a tricky, tricky disease, first of all, to diagnose and then to treat? I think um, some, some of the reasons it's so <clears throat> tricky are unlike other cancer types, um, there isn't um, a screening programme, um, which for many cancer types, there is a screening programme, whether that is um, by age, whether that is by going for certain tests, such as mammograms or ladies going for smear tests, going for well-man checks, and that includes having your PSA tested if, if, if they're looking for prostate cancer and so on, and, and other screening programmes. There isn't a possible screening programme for pancreatic cancer. I think that's one of the problems. I think not we know about pancreatic cancer, we know about the pancreas, but I think if you actually ask a lot of people, they don't even know where the pancreas is, let alone that they can get cancer in it and how deadly that is when they get cancer in it. So then you're leading on to that if they don't know what the pancreas is, where it sits, what it does, how do they know something's wrong with it if they don't know they have it? So it's they're not aware of symptoms. The symptoms can then be so vague when they do occur that somebody may put it down to they've got an upset tummy, they've got a, a loss of appetite because maybe they've just felt a bit tired. The whole of things coming together, we can hear those when we see patients and think, so back then you had that symptom, but actually we are seeing this all of the time. 
someone experiencing one or two of those symptoms isn't necessarily going to put the things together and think something's wrong with my pancreas. So I think that's why it's so vicious that there isn't enough known about it. It doesn't have the high profile that other diseases have, that other cancers have. Um, and the symptoms can be, I'm not saying they always are, but they can be vague symptoms that perhaps people would put down to other causes and may not seek help until maybe they wake up and they've gone yellow. Um, and then they will present to the GP or the, or the hospital. One of the things we know as well is, you know, one in four patients with pancreatic cancer don't present with being yellow because the, where the cancer actually starts is in a part of the pancreas that doesn't cause blockage of the tube that drains bile from the liver. So they, they don't present yellow and they present, they classically present very little with really advanced disease that we just can't do anything about. But some of, the, some of the other challenges include things like this cancer doesn't respond well to the chemotherapeutic agents that we are presently using. And so there is a drive um, to try to adjust um, those things. For instance, there's a, a great body of work um, being conducted by the Glasgow group, um, Professor Bianchi et al, to try and, and focus the type, of the type of chemotherapeutic agent to the depending on what sort of the mutations are in the genes for that particular type of pancreatic cancer. But you're right, it's kind of one of those cancers that have been left behind. Trying to find a screening tool, you know, we can't find a screening tool that works effectively. And when I say effectively, you're talking from purely from a health economics point of view. It isn't value for money. I can understand where people are coming from when they're talking about health economics and value for money. But if you're that one patient that has that disease, you, money is nothing, you know, compared to the fact that you are you have that disease. So health, health economics goes out the window. We haven't found a way of producing a stage shift. So for instance, um, as Vicky said, a lot of other cancers have had screening tools, breast cancer, prostate cancer, bowel cancer. They have lots of screening and their survival has improved because what has happened is they've, been, they've managed to create a stage shift instead of Patients presenting with disease that is really advanced, they're screening and also they're presenting with earlier disease, they're finding the disease at an earlier stage. And the, the, the nationally um, launched um, lung health check program is to try to do the same thing for lung cancer. For pancreatic cancer, nada, nothing. Yeah? And she, Vicky's right, it's not the sexy cancer to have these days. Yeah? It's not the sexy cancer to have. And so, I think it's really important that people out there, they, they need to learn to fight for this. They really have to learn to fight for this. As healthcare professionals who specialise in this, in the pancreas and pancreatic cancer, how frustrating is it for you to go through, to, to be sort of always battling against all the odds, all the odds are always stacked against you? How, how, is it, how frustrating is it for you guys? I find it incredibly frustrating. Um, I mean, obviously, we, we work in it and with it. And I know that people won't see this, but clearly you can see me, Charlotte, and you can see that I've got purple hair, which I don't normally. And I am in purple and my glasses are purple and I do lots of purple craziness because we need to raise awareness. And I will do whatever it takes to do that. But... I'm one person and, and okay, well, I've got a team of people here and we all do crazy things. But the frustration is that you don't see 
that on a national level. So you don't see a massive supermarket, and I won't name any, getting behind pancreatic cancer with a tickle campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> sorry, I just, sorry, I just, sorry, I had to sneeze. I apologize. I had to sneeze. I had to sneeze. <laughs> so I had to sneeze. Sorry. Bless you. Sorry. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Bless you. Thank you. Yeah. So. <laughs> So you don't see that that same, I don't know, elevation of pancreatic cancer that you might do for other cancers. You don't see, I don't know, a, a massive moonwalk through the through the capital city with everyone dressed in purple, like you might see them dressed in decorated undergarments. You don't see that. And that frustrates me because actually these are the people who need us to fight the very most because they're having a raw deal. And I think people need to know they're having a raw deal. They're getting diagnosed late. They've not got a screening program. They're having horrendous symptoms. If they can have surgery, it's huge surgery, massive surgery that might then have complications after it. But for the majority of patients, they're not offered that surgery and their time is limited and people on mass should be shouting about that. This is really hard to describe. You know, when, when you, there was a, um, there was, um, there are a number of studies which have looked at when you um, constantly subject um, individuals to a particular type of uh, influence. So for instance, if you um, subject people to um, violent movies, for instance, after a while, the first movie might be, they might cringe at the type of violence, but actually after a while, they, they numbed it. And you see a certain aspect of that within, within this whole field of cancer. You, they're, they're, people respond differently, okay? They, for me, there are two arms, and I might be wrong. There are those who, um, and I've said this to my colleague, I said, um, this is becoming more and more devastating for me. Every time I have to say to this to a patient, I could feel a little piece of me dying. And I don't mean that, I'm not trying to be all philosophical, but you could feel, I remember thinking to myself, how, how much longer am I going to be able to do this? Breaking this new, these news to these people and watching the, the look in their eyes, watching the devastation, knowing they're going to leave their office, the clinic, um, with nowhere to run, nowhere to go, um, and knowing what's coming. And there's some people who just get numb to it and they just kind of, it becomes a matter of fact situation, they, they, you know, because they've, they've, they've done it for so many years so long. And I've said to Michael, I don't ever want to become like that because that sort of, why I became a doctor to start with is very different to my philosophy about medicine now. Um, and I could say why I started why I started off as being a doctor, wrong philosophy. But that has changed over time. And, and I think I don't want to ever lose that ability to, to actually um, not, not detach myself from the process because there's a human element to this. Um, and, and it's as it's frustrating, but it's, it's exceptionally sad. It is really, really sad as working in the public sector that 
um, you have to do this day in, day out. And I know there are people who do this a lot more than I have to do. And I, I don't know how they deal with that. I, don't, I honestly don't know how they cope with it. Um, but it is, it's, it's, I'm surprised that a, that a, a cancer that is so, um, that has such a huge impact, has more hasn't been done about it within the UK setting. We are a first world country, man. You know, we, you know, it's unacceptable to, you know, put this on the back burner. You know, we should be fighting for this. Obviously, the, the, the real tragedy with pancreatic cancer is quite often when you're telling someone the news that they've got pancreatic cancer, you're then also telling them that they are essentially going to die and it's not often a huge amount of time that they have left. I know you're not end-of-life specialists, but the work that you do means that you do deal a lot with, with end-of-life care. How do you make sure that end-of-life doesn't mean end-of-life is that point on, that, that diagnosis means end-of-life? How, how do you keep life going for as long as possible? I think... The... The reality is that, yes, the majority of people that we see, we are not going to be saying you have a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and we are going to cure you of that cancer. That's that is the, the reality. It isn't a reality which I like, but it is a reality that we have to work with. Um, I think it's vital that we work alongside people who do work in end of life care and that includes palliative care teams, but that also includes a much broader team of allied health professionals so that we are able to keep the patient as well as they possibly can be and symptom-free for as long as they can be, however long that is. Um, and that was something that was said by somebody far greater than me, which was Dame Cicely Saunders, um, that we must keep people as well as we can for as long as we can. And we have to do that. And if that is involving our colleagues, that doesn't mean we say, well, we've diagnosed you, there's nothing we can do now. So we'll just hand you over to the palliative care team. And, and I've been a palliative care nurse and I didn't like that people thought you were being wheeled in because someone was dying and you had just come to sign the death warrant almost. And that isn't how it is. It's it's working with the family, it's making sure that they're supported, that the patient is supported. And just because we may not be able to cure them doesn't mean we don't care about them. <clears throat> we care, that's why we do this job. So I think we achieve that, however long that is, by working with our colleagues um, and making that the very best it possibly can be by involving the family and the patient and our colleagues but it doesn't mean that we don't care. I think there's a huge volume of work that needs to be done around this aspect of the um, delivery of the terminal diagnosis. I actually don't think that there's enough, there's a good enough support structure around these patients and their families. For me, there are two aspects to this, and what Vicky said is absolutely right. There's the physical aspect. We, we know that this disease is terminal. We know that over time, you're, your body starts giving up. Um, and how can we maintain some form of um, um, physical depend um, in, in independence, sorry. But it's a psychological aspect of this. And that's huge. And that's something that we tend to forget. 
there's a huge psychological impact. In fact, the mind probably is impacted greater than the body in terms of how we cope with this disease or the patient and the relative copes with the disease. Because if mentally you have said, okay, game over, I'm done for, you're not going to move, get out of your bed. So we do have to address that aspect of the patients and the, the relatives, not just the patients, it's the relatives needs it because the relatives, the, the carers, the relatives, the, the significant others, you know, they mentally traumatized by this news, by this news. So there's a, I think it's a huge body of work that needs to be done around how we socially support um, that, that group, not just the patient, but the relatives. And we haven't done enough. We, we have a bit of a, we have a bit of a palliative team that come and talk to them and they do fantastic work with the palliative team, hats off to them, but isn't a huge psychological support, you know, and one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. Your, if you and I may be diagnosed with pan terminal pancreatic cancer, what I need in terms of, um, or, or what will work best for me in terms of um, supporting me through my final days may not necessarily be what, um, you need, and our our system has become so tick boxy, you know, that it's a it, it's all protocolized. It's protocolized so much that you know we have to follow this truck. Yeah, and if you step outside that box, will you know woe be on to you. You know, we have to step away from that. We have to listen to the patients. We have to listen to the immediate, the, the significant other. They mean, what is it that they need? Not try to dictate to them. This is what we're going to do for you. But actually, what is it you want? I've had patients who've had this disease and said, I don't want anything. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've had a good run in life. Leave me alone, please. I just want to be comfortable. I don't want any pain. We have to respect that. Yeah, we're not, it's not our job to try to convince them to have some form of treatment. It's our job to respect their wishes and try to do what we can for them. And similarly, when it comes to the psychological impact of this, we need to listen to the patients, we need to listen to the significant others. It's not for us to say, dear, dear, here's some happy pills. That's gonna help you, you know? Again, I go back to a case I remember with the 41 year old mother who died, you know, with two children. And the, the, I remember the husband, you know, he used to call me on the phone, we talk and chat like that because I realized this is a huge impact to him and his family, okay? And I, he said, he, he went to see a psychologist, right? And the psychologist, he said every time, he, after about four visits, the first thing the psychologist said to him is, um, how are you doing? And he said on the fourth visit, he said, I think, he said to him, how the F do you think I'm doing? My wife just died. <laughs> you know, what What sort of silly question is that? And he couldn't, they couldn't do for him what he needed. And I can't remember how he came across this, but he said, Darren, I started writing and I found that writing helps me. Yeah. I yeah. put on paper what I feel, how it's impacting me. And he said, that actually helped me. Not going and talking some mumbo jumbo to somebody on a couch. For him, that's what he needed. Yeah. But unless you listen, you unless we listen, I'm, not just us, but I'm not a psychologist. You know, this that's way out of my area of expertise. But I know if we don't listen to people, we, we can't say what they want. We can't, we can't tell what they want. Obviously, November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. What I say this every year. So we've been doing this podcast now for a few years, and I speak to people every, you know, lots of years. And I say, if I was to come back to you this time next year, what in your what what would be the one thing that you wish would be different? 
It can be your wildest dreams. I'd I'd like to have some hair. (laughs) If my if my hair grew back, that would be fantastic. A great start. It might not have the disease, but um, you know, it it you know might help my um self confidence. (laughs) Um, What would you want, Vicky? Realistically, I'd like to think that we were diagnosing everyone early enough for some to, for us to offer some form of treatment. Of course, I'd love everybody to be able to be cured, but that's why I said realistically. I know that in 12 months' time, we are not going to be curing everybody. But if we were able to diagnose everyone and they all had an option for treatment, that's not me saying I'll force treatments on anyone, that everyone has to have the choice as to whether treatment is for them or not. But I'd like us to be able to be offering treatment to every patient we diagnosed. Yeah, I... I... I support that. I think um, I'd like to, maybe I probably want two things. One is I want a, a screening tool. Um, and I want us, I, I probably, if you look at pancreatic cancer in terms of surgical treatment, that hasn't changed. Okay, it, you know, 56 years, we're still doing the same operation, the very same operation. It hasn't changed. So for me, the, the answer probably lies in the chemotherapy that we could probably administer, finding, finding good um, system chemotherapy that would would work, you know, like the chemotherapy there for bowel cancer, for instance, and breast cancer. Finding finding that's a, a good screening tool and some good chemotherapy, you know. I'm a surgeon, okay. Uh, uh, what I do, my operation hasn't changed in 70 years, so really, it's it's not about me. It's about the things are wrong, around the things happening around my surgical treatment of that patient that that will help them in the long run. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. As I said at the beginning, lots of passion, lots of frustrations, but ultimately two people who really want to make things better. As always, you can get in touch with us here at Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts by going to the website purplerainbow.co.uk and we'll be back in December with more Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts.